0: Hello and welcome to the Centralized Justice broadcast. My name is Federico Ast. I am president at the Cooperative Cleros. And today we have my friend José Luis Martí who holds a PhD in political science and government from Pompeu-Frabia University from Barcelona. He's a professor of law and political philosophy at the same university and has studies at the Lawrence S. Rockefeller University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. Jose Luis is a researcher in collective intelligence, democracy, and the challenges of global governance. And he was also one of the speakers at the decentralized justice conference we organized in January 2020 at the University of Leicester in the UK. And in this episode, we will discuss all things about globalization, technology, and the future of democracy in the internet age. So let's get to it. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Centralized Justice broadcast. Uh, We are today with uh, José Luis Martí, uh, who um, is a a friend of mine, and uh, I I would say at this point, a longtime friend of Claro's. Um, He was present at the first conference we made at Leicester's in January 2020, Uh, so the first centralized justice conference. Um, So José Luis, uh, he holds a PhD in political science and government from Pompeu Fabra University from Barcelona. He's a professor of law and political philosophy at the same university and has studies at the Lawrence Rockefeller University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. José Luis is a researcher in collective intelligence, democracy and the challenges of global governance. José Luis, a pleasure to have you with us. But first, um, tell, tell us a bit about you I mean, what got you interested in, in, in researching uh, democracy, politics and the things that you research currently?
1: Uh, well, it was a long time ago when I was when I finished my studies in law and I started the PhD, um, I had to choose a, a topic for the for the uh, thesis. And back then, I remember one one of my teachers, actually, this is how life goes and, and how serendipity sometimes happens. Uh, one of my teachers at Pompeu Fabra University was a professor from Argentina, originally from Argentina. Roberto Gargarella, who was, he was in turn disciple of Carlos Nino, another uh, famous Argentinian legal philosopher. And it was Roberto who uh, called my attention to read uh, one of the latest Carlos Nino's uh, books, that he left actually as a manuscript when he died very young in 1993. Uh, and this this book was on deliberative democracy. And it blew it my mind, it blew my mind. So it was like, uh, wow, this is what I want to study. Uh, I I now see that democracy is a much more complex idea. Democracy cannot be reduced only to voting in an election every four years. It has to do with something much more sophisticated, much more complicated and philosophically challenging. Um, and so back then I, I decided, okay, I need to study this. I want to study democracy. And that's, as you uh, just said, um that's what brought me actually to uh to enroll in the PhD program in political science, even if I came from law. So then I, I tried to combine law, political science, and philosophy to study democracy. That was from the beginning uh 25 years ago. Um and I did my thesis on deliberative the democracy. But when I finished the thesis, and I finished the book, it finally came out as a book in two thousand and six. Uh, then I, I thought, um, okay, the book. Might be you know reasonably well, uh, but it clearly has two missing points, and these two missing points for me they were it's not only that it was something that I could not fix by adding a new chapter or by adding a new section and and maybe a few footnotes and a few references, and these two missing points that for me were absolutely central. I thought that democracy back then in two thousand six had to be reconceptualized on the basis of these two missing points was one, global democracy and global governance. I thought there was nothing of that in my thesis, but I thought in the world in which we live today, we need to take this into consideration very seriously, how we can improve the governance that we have at the global level. And the second one, pretty obvious, was the new technologies, the impact of the technological revolution. I said something in the book in passing here and there, a few references, but that was something that I didn't study systematically. And then I thought, okay, uh, for the next years, I need to study seriously uh, globalization and global governance and the impact of new technology in the political world, but more concretely in democracy.
0: Hmm. Um, And what what are the challenges brought by globalization and new technologies to, to democracy? And maybe first clarify what democracy is, because different people have different understandings of what democracy seems to be.
1: <laughs> absolutely. And and that's absolutely normal. That's what, exactly what happens with any other important concept. Uh, people disagree about what freedom is, about what equality is, about what love or friendship are. So uh, this is... First of all, disagreement about what democracy means is totally normal. Let's normalize it, uh, especially because it, it's a normative concept. So when we uh, use the, the name democracy, we we make reference to something that is somehow an ideal, uh, a political ideal. It's an ideal of how we would like our political systems to be, right. um, and that's why, if you remember, that's an old, a very old uh, disagreement, a very old debate. But in the sixties and seventies. Uh, in Europe and in the world, there was this debate between liberal democracies on the one hand, so-called Western democracies and then uh the democracies that were called popular democracies they were the ones uh you know in the Soviet Union or in eastern Europe and and it was funny because both uh parts of the world uh by extension every every single country in the world, was aligned with one of these two competing ideals of democracy. And of course, everyone was claiming that the real genuine democracy hmm. was the one that they were having in mind, right? Uh, but this only means that we are in front of a, cons- a normative concept. And then there are as many notions of democracy as normative democratic theories. Uh, and So uh, I, I don't want to to take too much time with this, but I think that We have all an intuitive idea of democracy, a very basic one, because in the end, after this debate that I was making reference, in the end, the so-called liberal democracy, so to speak, won uh, the discussion. And then so they imposed this kind of very basic, minimal sense of democracy that has to do with, as we all know, with voting in free elections, uh, in pre-periodic elections, in some conditions of uh, some fundamental rights being uh, guaranteed, like uh, freedom of expression and the freedom of thought, freedom of reunion, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so this these very basic notion of democracy now is compatible with very different understandings of democracy. One of them is the deliberative understanding that I mentioned before. This is one uh, approach to democracy, but there are many others, right? And And these different people, especially now, because we talk about democracy worldwide, different people in different countries and within the same country, they might have different understandings of democracy. But uh, what what I like to cite here, I I, I end with this, uh, the answer, but what I like to mention when I'm asked what democracy is or what it means, is the the very old definition given by Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln defined democracy, and this is a very famous uh, quote from Lincoln, as the government of the people, the government by the people, and the government for the people. So democracy is the system of government in which the people rule themselves, by themselves, and for themselves. What does it mean? Well, that's the open question that then normative democratic theory tries uh, to answer.
0: Um, So what are the challenges that are brought by new technologies and and globalization to to this concept of, of democracy?
1: Yes, I start with globalization because I think it's a little bit easier. Uh, the, the main challenge, of course, at least as far as I, I see it, the main challenge is that the world has changed. The world is totally global today. We can see it, especially with the big corporations, they operate at the global level, but not only with that. So economic globalization, this comes from the 80s and 90s, and, and we all know that we have these global companies, uh, oil companies, energy companies, banks, uh um, the financial sector there are many many sec- all economic sectors pretty much everyone uh, has been globalized now um but this was just uh, the beginning of it what happens today and everyone knows is that internet and that's why actually the two things interconnect that they are not uh, totally independent the internet and the new technologies they have also driven another kind of globalization which is perhaps more important than the economic one which is the cultural one so today we are uh, receiving information from every corner of the world in real time, so we know what happens everywhere. We don't need to be physically there, uh, and this is fantastic. This allows us actually to empathize with anything that is happening in Iran right now, or in uh, Qatar in in the World Cup, or in any uh, single country when there is a, a disaster, a natural disaster, or any problem anywhere. Um, so this uh, is a strengthening uh, the cultural ties and also the interpersonal connections between people all around the world in a way that is changing our social life, is changing our culture, is changing our way of approaching things. And for me, there's no way back from this. So this is the pattern of evolution. Globalization will go on. Uh, it's not stopped as some people like to say. It's it, it never stopped, especially this cultural globalization. Maybe we see less boats because of the pandemic. We might, may have seen less boats Uh, bringing uh, goods from one country to another, but this is totally contingent and and contextual. The big pattern is a pattern of uh, progressive globalization, growing globalization, and we will see more. Um, What what this produces in democracy is a total, a fundamental mismatch, because many uh, challenges that we face today in the world the pandemic is a perfect example, but we also have the uh, um, the climate emergency, the climate crisis. Um, we have nuclear security, the regulation of the banking sector, or uh, global inequalities. There are uh, hundreds or, or dozens of examples of planetary challenges, as they call them, or global challenges, that we all face. We are all in the same boat. We are all exposed to uh, COVID-19. We are all exposed to the climate emergency. So these are the challenges, the most important challenges that we face today. And we would expect, as always in our history, we could expect our political system to deal with these challenges effectively. But there is a problem. The problem is that there is a fundamental mismatch. Our political systems are basically nationally based. We have national political systems. We have the states. This is the most important political instrument that we have. We have some global governance, but we all know that this is totally insufficient. Too weak, too fragile, et cetera. So what the problem the mismatch that I refer here is that all m- most of our political instruments, they are designed for a world that it, it doesn't exist anymore. So that's the world of the nineteenth century, the twentieth century, but it's clearly not the world of the twenty first century. This mismatch for me, it's a fundamental challenge and a terrible problem. And then with new technology, what happens is, of course, new technology is changing everything, has changed our life, our society, our economy, it, it's changing everything. We are actually only at the beginning of it, as we know. We don't know how, how it will evolve, which will be the new uh, uh, technology that will have a hype uh, in a few years or will be more transforming or more revolutionary. Uh, we have some clues here about how how can we expect, what can we expect from the future, but we need to be honest, we really don't know how the future will be in 50 years, for instance. But what we know, uh, and this is something that nobody can deny, is that the future in 50 years will be much more digitalized and much more transformed by technology. We don't know which kind of technology, but technology will have a much more central role than it has today, which is absolutely central. So democracy needs to adapt to this as well for the good and for the bad, because technology has an enormous potential to improve our democracies and our political systems. And of course, it it also has some downsides, some dark sides and some specific challenges that we need to, to know and be aware of basically to deal better with them. But the transformation that new technologies is producing already and it will produce even more in the future. This is absolutely fundamental. Democracy will not be the same in the next years. Uh, It cannot be the same as it used to be in the 19th century and the 20th century. It needs to adapt to the new times. So what I see
0: that, uh, me, that I work in the blockchain industry. And so we are, I mean, most of our our interactions, I mean, tend to happen like uh, online, on digital platforms, more than, you know, my geographical, I mean, I don't know who the guy who lives next door is, but I do like business every day and they collaborate uh, with people who are in in the case of claros at least in 20 different countries because the team is all, almost 30 people you know um, spread around the world so for like for a practical i mean uh, situation maybe it matters more what the governance is in these platforms digital platforms where we spend more time than our nation state i mean uh, governance you know what, what are your thoughts? I mean, should we start thinking of democracy online, in online platforms, rather than nation-states?
1: Um, yes, I, condi- I, w- I would say a conditional yes. Um, yes, but with some conditions. Uh, so I, I think we definitely need to rethink the ways in which all these big companies that own the big platforms, especially the social media, uh, we need to rethink how these companies are uh, how the power in these companies is distributed, how the decisions are made, and in the end, how the governance of these institutions is run. So this this became a critical thing. Uh, I, I agree with that, and and there is room for improvement. Uh, so we again, um, as I was saying regarding democracy, uh, we should not uh, be here constrained by the ways in which we have been thinking about the ownership of these companies um, with the paradigm that basically evolved in the 18th, 19th century and mostly 20th century. This is a, uh, now to be to make it easy, uh, maybe oversimplistic, but this is the liberal paradigm in which there is a fundamental distinction between the public sphere and the private sphere. And then of course, the government should not intervene in the private sphere. You You may have a different understanding of how big the public sphere, the government sphere must be, and and we have you know, a divide between the left and the right and, and all kinds of debates. But this is the debate about how big the public sphere must be. But then there was agreement that the private sphere, whatever it is, it's private. So it's not the, the government's business and it's not the people's business because it's private. In the private life, you do whatever you do. That's the kind of paradigm that we inherited from the 18th century, the modern kind of perspective on, on liberal politics. Um, I think we need to reconceptualize this. Not because I don't think that there should be a division between public and private. I think this division keeps to be fundamental and I think we need we have good reasons to preserve it. Basically, that we need to preserve the freedom of people. But once said this, we need to understand that in the world in which we live, it's it's much more hybrid. Um, The collaborations between public institutions and private institutions are much more rich today and they should be more rich in the future. Uh, we need to stimulate and encourage these kind of partnerships and collaborations more and more. But this also means that we need to accept that these private uh, companies, they are playing a fundamental role for democracy, which, in a way, if you think about it, it's pretty similar to to what happened with the press in the past. The press was absolutely fundamental for democracy, for modern democracy. We needed a free press, we needed a a press that was plural and that was, uh, you know, of course, good for delivering truth and information to people. Um, and we had reasons actually to care about how the press was organized and how power was distributed there and so on. Now, um, what happens with this is in, in some points, it's pretty similar. So we need to understand the importance of social media and these platforms of interaction and participation. And now, um, preserving always individual liberties and freedom and and all that, uh, we need to think more about how the government or or maybe how the people directly might participate more in the governance of these institutions. Uh, Because in the end, and probably we will have time to discuss about this later, but in the end, this is actually what happens also with governments and public institutions. One of the challenges here is how to make them more open to the public, to the participation of the public. So the same, pretty much the same challenge, uh, we can find it regarding the private sector for these critical sectors like social media and the big technological companies. I think that we should see more uh, citizen participation and citizen engagement in the governance of these companies, yes. But at the same time, and, and that was the condition I, I wanted to to add to this, uh, at the same time, we we don't, we should not forget the important role of states regulating the sector, uh, even if I admit uh, one of the problems we have there is that the sector is fully global and governments are national. So there is this mismatch that I was making reference before. But we desperately need some kind of basic regulations of these sectors.
0: One, one thing um, we have uh, discovered last year, I would, I would say that like or So. So you know, Twitter, uh, Elon Musk, you know, lots of discussions about free speech. Um, so what is free speech? I and mean, was Trump banned rightfully or not? So all that. So um, traditionally, people used to see like content moderation in these platforms as you know, like a service provided by the company to I mean, for people to to engage in a way without scammers or without you know nasty things. But we have seen recently that more and more. These um, services of content moderation uh, are starting to become highly critical in the sense of, you know, banning Trump. I mean, and guaranteeing the access to uh, free speech in the sense that you said before it was important to see in the case of Argentina there was a big discussion of who owns the factory of paper and of ink for publishing papers so this is the equivalent for the you know um, digital age is like okay, who controls the switches to ban people on and off and typically this was done in a like a um Closed room by the moderators of the company and by the owners, but we have seen people asking for more accountability uh, for why a decision of banning someone is done or not. And people, I mean, so and something we have started developing recently is: what if you use Claro's to do like a trial on you know if this comment made by this guy deserves or not you know to be deleted or or the guy banned? So we kind of are seeing like people interested in in how these decisions are made. And this is something that you didn't see before. Before it was okay, the company does that. Maybe you're not happy. I mean, so this, I mean, you can can see how the the, like uh, uh, area of um, free speech and how to regulate free speech is like shifting from the nation states to, I mean, online platforms. I know, react to this.
1: Yes, no. I'm glad that you mentioned this because I think it's it's fundamental. Um, let let me say first uh, that it's exactly the same that happens with democracy, in my opinion, in my view. So, with democracy, we think about how the democracy, kind of Western liberal democracy, was in the uh, past uh, century, in the fifties or sixties. Um, so, most most of democracies, I mean, so many countries were not democratic. Many countries are not democratic even today, but uh, those are countries that were democratic in the 1950s, um, the traditional picture of this was that citizens, basically they participated in the government by casting a ballot in the elections. They chose some representatives, a party or a candidate. And after that, um, it was not their business anymore, right? So it was... Uh, the ball was on on the representatives and politicians roof they had to to play with that and there was very little accountability uh de facto but there was very little claim for accountability as well so the people what they wanted is okay i chose i I chose you now it's your turn you need to do that and if i don't like the results maybe i will switch my vote in the next election but but don't bother me for four years i'm of course exaggerating and it's just a uh a simplification but this is not the case anymore because people regarding the democratic systems they are eager to see much more accountability they want to to say to their representatives look i voted for you fine okay but you don't have a blank check here you don't you cannot do whatever you want you need to, to tell me what you're saying what you're deciding and why which which are the reasons that brought you to decide this and you need to give me some explanation and some kind of uh, um, answer when I ask you why you did you did this. And, and I think it's exactly the same that you described regarding the private sector. I think you are totally right that people now, they want to hold uh, the owners of all these big companies accountable for what they decide. And I think they are right to do so. My impression, and you might disagree with that, but my impression is that this has to do, let me be optimistic here, then we will <laughs> mention some other sources of pessimism, but let me be optimistic here, This has to do with the fact that for the first time, never before in our history, we had so many people well-educated, relatively well-informed and relatively well-aware of what is the importance of all these people making decisions on their behalf. These are decisions that have impact on their lives. And it doesn't matter if it's the public sector or the private sector. The decisions made by Twitter, you mentioned the the Trump ban uh, by Twitter, and Facebook and the other social media, when, when that happened, this affects not only Donald Trump, but this affects many people. And they want an explanation. They want a justification of that. And they want to hold accountable the people who made that decision. Doesn't matter if it's a private company, because the important thing here is that that decision was very consequential for everyone. And so for me, it's a it's a good point. It's a healthy point that people now want to know more and they want to have more accountability on the decision makers that are making those decisions. So I think it's a good a good trend, absolutely. Uh, um, and and yeah. also <laughs> in, addition to that, in addition to that, I think that regarding freedom of expression, uh, I think we all know now, I, I'm a maximalist advocate of freedom of expression. So in my view, uh, we need to have very little restrictions on freedom of expression. Some of them are necessary. But I even have doubts, just to give you an idea, I even have have doubts about hate speech in general. So Mm. uh, many people think that hate speech should be a limit. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that Nazis, for instance, should be banned uh, of the possibility of publishing books or articles or whatever, I'm not sure. I think that we need to defend a maximalist freedom of expression. Uh, But once said this, we all know that debate is impossible unless you have some procedural rules and some basic uh, rules. Um, So what happens, and this is what, for me, that's what we can extract, what we can draw from Elon Musk's uh, taking over of Twitter, is that he is invoking freedom of expression all the time to set down all the rules that uh, were associated to moderating the debates and and imposing some limits. But this is paradoxical because the thing is, what we know, when Twitter, is full of trolls again, and full of people attacking others and insulting others and so on. The result of that is that people are less less free to share mm. their views and their beliefs. Uh, so this actually is damaging freedom of expression. If we want to protect ma- a maximalist notion of freedom of expression, we do need some limits and some rules.
0: So um, what about the pessimistic element of of, of this crowd participation in, in politics? I mean, the traditional world of nation states and democracies, okay, people, okay, you vote every four years, uh, but, you know, but you vote for people who are experts in this and you vote for people who have developed an expertise in managing state businesses and, and all that. I mean, what are the risks of having everyone being able to participate at all times? I mean, I'm thinking this in particular connected to something that even Plato, I mean, wrote about in, I mean, (laughs) more than 2,000 years ago, you know, all this, this idea of theatocracy he had, um, people, I mean, being influenced by the the theater in his time. But, you know, social media is a place of uh, who is the most popular guy. And I mean, necessarily who is the best for making decisions for, so. What are your thoughts about this? I mean, what is the pessimistic element of of this crowd participation?
1: Yes. Um, so, uh, b- before saying, before answering the question, I think that, that you're right uh, uh, in pointing out that uh, this is a very old debate. That it comes from ancient Greece, and we had uh, Plato and Aristotle and many others uh, having different ideas of democracy or government. Um, and and you're right. Uh, you know, in a, in a sense, in one sense. Uh, the old aspiration, also the modern aspiration of the division of labor, right? So we we ask uh, these uh, experts to uh, make decisions on our name, and we do our best to choose the best ones, and they will decide on our name, and we can trust them. And if they don't do it very well, well, we can punish them at least every four years. This old aspiration, it was very nice. Uh, I don't have anything negative to say about this, except for the fact that we have. I think we have learned that this was never the case. So we never chose the right people. They are not experts on anything. There are many examples of this, uh, just one related to the technological sector. We all remember what happened when Mark Zuckerberg went uh, to the Senate hearing and the senators of the US, they didn't understand. They, they didn't even understand how Facebook works. So they are clearly not the experts on the matter to make the right uh, questions to Mark Zuckerberg. Um, so we have a problem there. We never, we have proven across centuries that we were never able to identify and choose the right people to make decisions on our name. And I think that we all know now this more than ever. I think this is we, we we should never. I resist the idea that many people have today of thinking that democracy 50 years ago was fantastic because we had President Kennedy in the White House just just to give a. Global examples, the the American ones are are better known by everyone, right? But we had President Kennedy and he was such a fantastic democratic leader and so on. Well, you know, today we know much more about our leaders. And if back in the time we had known many things about Kennedy or Churchill or any of these big statesmen, uh, I think we would be disappointed because we are much more demanding today, much more. We expect more from our politicians. And they clearly were below the bar, even back then. So we should not romanticize the past. And now I go to your to your question, which is fundamental. So I think that one of the problems, probably the main problem in, in trying to defend the picture of participatory democracy in which people are engaged and participate all the time, is the risk of conflating this, of thinking that participation and uh, direct democracy or participatory democracy is the same as populist democracy. And the risk of populism is huge, is tremendous. Uh, This is one of the main challenges that we face today. What I like to say regarding this is that we should never forget that populism is not, it's not the same as democracy. It's not the best understanding of democracy, it's even worse. Populism is the opposite of democracy. So what you cannot think is that the people making decisions randomly or ignoring the basic facts. When they wake up in the morning, they push a a button and they vote yes or no in a referendum, ignoring the basic facts about the question, not knowing the complexity about it. So this is the worst version of democracy. This is the populist idea of democracy that is actually the opposite of democracy, because then you're not governed by the people, by people who are free and equals, who have the time to develop and ground a judgment, a solid judgment on these issues. So when when we talk about democracy as self-government, what we expect is that the people who make decisions are those who have the time and the interest to get informed about the issues and also to form a solid judgment. Correct or incorrect, we should not judge this, but they have a solid judgment, informed judgment about the issue. That's what the the ideal that we should uh, pursue, not the idea that we should welcome any input coming from the people. Actually, what you have, and, and I finished with this, but uh, let me give a, a, another technological example. What you have is more and more people saying, you may remember a few years ago uh, in the MIT review, there was a, uh, an article, an op-ed um, with the title, Who Needs Democracy When We Have Data? Question mark. Um, that's a risk uh, if you have this idea of democracy that conflates democracy with populist government with what people you know want without having seriously reflected about these issues uh, then the risk is that you might you might think that we don't need elections, we don't need parliaments, we don't need uh, the traditional instruments anymore because we have fantastic tools to analyze data, big data in our social media. So if you want to know what the people think about the war in Ukraine, what should we do about the war in Ukraine? Well, you screen the social media, you test how people react to this, you apply sentiment analysis, algorithms, whatever. So AI, they, they can give you a pretty decent picture of how the people is reacting to this in the social media, which we should never conflate with the actual judgment of people. Uh, We should make a distinction here. But but this data can give you a very decent image of what people are saying. And on the basis of that, you you might think, some people might think, that that's democracy. Uh, You you can make a decision based on what people are saying on the social media. That for me would be a nightmare, would be a catastrophe because people in the social media, first of all, it's not all the people. Second, they say things that they have not considered sufficiently and they are totally uninformed. And also the social media encourages some kind of communication and, and expressions that we know that this has happened to all of us. We have all said something in Twitter or Facebook or in one of these platforms one day and the day after we think, oh, my God, why did I say this? And that's what happens when you spontaneously sort of spontaneously communicate with another person. You're not making a political decision there. You are just having a bar conversation with someone. It's a totally different Uh, species or beast is a different kind of beast and so this is the risk i see we should never conflate democracy and participatory democracy with populist government the government of the people as you can make uh, allegedly in a plebiscite or in a referendum
0: okay so let me bring you to a, a different scenario connected to this i mean yeah i mean pulling data from social media for i mean uh Making decisions in politics is not a great idea because of the reasons you mentioned. But there is this argument that is done by Noah Yuval in the homodeus book, where he says, okay, like let's say that my computer holds lot of information about me, my my email, my everything, you know, where I go, and all of that. So what if I mean they could use all of those data to predict what I would choose in the different aspects of, I mean Monetary policy, you know, uh, how to fight crime. So I don't have time, you know, for thinking of this and in, because I have to work and all that. But you know, but my 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 data. I mean, okay, Federico, you would think this about this. So you, we will just vote for you because we know your preference better than what you do. So what, what do you think of that techn- yes. technocratic approach?
1: <laughs> yes. Um, um- I resist it. So I think that's that's the evil in the debate that we should have today. I think. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm joking, right? I'm kidding. But uh, but I think you know it, it's great that you put this into the on the table because I, I think these are the debates that we should have today when we think about the future of democracy. We we should think of along these lines, which in a way they are the the same old debates all the time. But now they are these old debates uh, apply to the new reality, and. It's not only, Harari, you know that the work of Cesar Hidalgo uh, and and many others who who are trying to develop AI systems uh, to help people to make uh, decisions when they need to go to vote. Um, So one of the things that I've, I've been studying in the last years is the contribution that AI might make in democratic systems. And for me, I think, you know, that's the worst example. So it's true that expert systems and AI systems, they can, you know, know very well about you and your preferences and your interests, and they can give you some service in recommending uh, what is the best political option for you in a referendum or in an election. It's true, they, they they can work. And I don't deny this, of course, this is a fact. I think that this is absolutely true. So what for me makes it uh, the worst example or or something that we should resist because there are fantastic contributions that AI might have in democratic systems other than this. But for some reason, many people focus on this to begin with. This is was as it happened 20 years ago, when you spoke about digital democracy, everyone, everyone was saying, okay, we should vote in elections, we should vote through the internet. Well, that's the least important thing because, I mean, in a way it was, if we did that, if we transform our elections into digital elections, we know that this brings, some new risks of manipulation and so on. And, and in a way, you know, it was okay, the way in which we were doing this traditionally with casting a paper ballot and so on, it was not so dramatic. Um, but there were many other contributions that the internet and new technologies might make. The same happens today with AI, 20 years later, uh, AI might make a lot of contributions. The problem with recommender systems, that the ones that already exist today we are not doing we're not making science fiction here so the the recommender systems that apply to politics is that it's true they can know pretty well about you and about the way you think about things today um and the problem is when they recommend you something if you trust them if you don't trust them then you you are being a fool using them because you don't trust them so but if you want to use them that means that you trust them And if you trust them, that means that when the recommender systems says, uh, you should vote A, uh, then you, because you trust them, you should vote A. And then as you said, I mean, you might think that's a good thing because now I can go to the beach or I can go to uh, read or I can go to the movies or whatever you like to do. Um, I have more free time for me. You might see the positive aspect of this. So the problem is that you suspend judgment. What you're doing is you're deferring to the judgment of the recommender system, which might be correct or not, but let's assume that it's pretty accurate regarding what you think today or what you have done in the past few years in your social media interactions. Some of these recommender systems, basically what they do is they react to your answers to a basic questionnaire. What others do is that they screen, they track what you do and say in, in through your mobile phone or through your social media. And on the basis of your interactions, they try to to define a a profile of you, and they say, okay, people like you who say all these things in the social media, they normally vote this. So they make a prediction based on the past of what people like you have been doing on a purely statistical basis. So the problem with this is, a, you defer to the system, so you don't have any incentive anymore to take to to spend time to invest time in trying to get informed about politics, trying try to get informed about whether those in the government are doing the right thing according to you, uh, and in you, uh, I mean, if you generalize this and you bring this across time, what happens is that people become less and less good citizens able to judge, to make basic judgments about when the government is doing the right thing or when the government is doing the the, the wrong thing. So what happens is the more this generalizes and advances, the less the people will be able, actually, to take over, to take power again if they need to. So I'm totally in favor of using tools, including AI tools, that can help us to improve our political judgment. I'm totally against tools that are meant, are designed, basically, to replace our political judgment and that bring us actually to defer, right? To suspend judgment because what we can say is, okay, now it's this bot or this AI system or this um, Alexa or whatever is deciding for me on the basis of my own information and I trust her. So I I will just defer to that information. So I think this is impoverishing uh, the basic conditions for democracy rather than strengthening the basic conditions of democracy, which for me should be the goal.
0: Good and let me get you um back to this thing where we started I mean of this mismatch between um you know the digital world and the nation state world and uh, so do you think that um so how is this is this going to be regulated you mentioned you know nation states are based on ideas of jurisdiction and geography and uh, so this also brings back an uh, old debate, you know, about, at least from the time of Kant. And, you know, do we need a world state for all this?
1: Yes, uh, but again, with some conditions. Yes, uh, I think we need global governance. Um, whether we, we call it a state or not, people have different ideas of what a state is. So if you say, when you say we need a global state or a world state, some people will start thinking, okay, but that... Comes associated by definition with having a world army or a world uh, military forces, um, and, and that I would resist. Uh, I think we have good reasons actually to to keep global governance as plural as possible, and as decentralized as possible. And I think you know Kant actually the main argument by Kant to resist the idea of a world state was the risk of tyranny. So this is one of the you know for democracy this is probably the main driver. Democracy is always against tyranny. It's a way of distributing power to avoid the possibility of one single person or a bunch of people concentrating all this power. So that's the basic idea of democracy as associated with the government of the people, by the people and for the people. It's that we need to distribute power. Um, So the same applies to the global level. So we need to experiment. Nobody knows exactly how how it should be. Uh, So this is a challenge that we have as as political philosophers, and as citizens, we have the challenge of thinking and designing new kinds of institutions that might operate at the global level with resources, with authority, with some kind of jurisdiction, but without many traditional features that we associate with the state, like having an army or having a police or having maybe even global prisons. I would resist that. Anything that has to do with hard power, I think it's too risky to put it at a global level. But at the same time, we need to experiment and innovate in finding ways of transferring, delegating some power to the global level uh, to make it possible for global institutions to make effective uh, decisions that deal effectively with the challenges that we have. Now, technology is crucial here because, as you rightly said before in a, in a previous question, um, now we might don't know our neighbors in the same floor in our building, uh, but we might be uh, you know in contact with friends all over the world in different corners of the world, and we might surely we know much more about people living in different countries than uh, our own neighbors here. But if you think about it historically, with the big picture, there's nothing uh, surprising here. it's not it's not really uh, something really new. Uh, so when when originally we went from local democracy and local government, at the level of cities. Uh, when we had city-states in the ancient Greece, or uh, even in the middle ages, we had just a small political units. Um, and, and basically our life was, most of it, was with the people living in our own city or town. And of course, then we had communal relationships with all these people living in our small town because we were less people and and that was our entire life happened in that town with that people and of course we you had to know your neighbor it was fundamental that you know that neighbor because your life happened with your neighbor in that street in that neighborhood um when when we went from that to the world of states and also the world of big cities everything changed So it's not now with new technology that this changed. This already changed in the 20th century. The fact that when you go think about the story of many people who have been born in a small town where they know everyone, but they go to live in the big city. And then in the big city, they they never know their neighbors. They have friends and acquaintances and networks uh, to work or to socialize or to get amusement all over the city. And they can have friends in 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 all the other neighborhoods with whom they interact and they spend time and they go out, etc. At the same time, they might totally ignore who is their neighbor next door. So this already happened at the level of big cities. And this is now happening at the global level because your life now, and this is the big contrast with the life of someone in the middle age or even before, your life now happens uh, and has a lot of dimensions with, people who live all around the world. So actually the the problem we have here is not that we should anticipate kind of global democracy to try to bring, to to, uh, artificially create some kind of global relationships that today doesn't exist. It's exactly the opposite. The social relationships, they are already globalized. Our life is already globalized. We buy products that come from different countries and we consume uh, cultural products that have been made in different places. Our cultural life is also, as I was insisting before, I think for me, this is very, very important. Uh, We see movies and and listen to music and read books that have been produced in very different cultural contexts from everywhere in the world. So this means that our social life is already, to an important extent, is already global. What is failing here, what is missing here, is the match coming from the political institutions. Um, so for me, that is fundamental. And I think technology needs to do its part in globalizing institutions in a way that allows people, there are many, if, if you want, we can discuss about concrete examples. There are many interesting initiatives today. Actually, Kleros, you are a, a super interesting initiative coming from the civil society and and, I have to say, most interesting initiatives are coming from civil society. So political institutions, national or global, they are failing their duty to try to innovate and transform themselves into something new. And perhaps this is what you could expect. But but what we are seeing is that it's the civil society that is bringing initiatives and ideas and energy and power to try to push into this transformation. And regarding global governance in particular, for instance, just to name one initiative regarding climate change, there has been already one and they are now working in organizing the second. It has been organized the first global citizen assembly in which people not from every country, because that is impossible, but but dozens of people uh, randomly selected from very different countries trying to represent uh, somehow Uh, to some extent, the plurality that exists in the world, they have been called to participate in this global assembly to discuss about climate change issues. And of course, uh, they did it online. Of course, they they never traveled to any physical space. They did everything online. This was impossible before the internet. Now it's possible and it's actually the the most normal thing. Actually, we are doing uh, online things all the time. So the most normal thing is that you also do political things online.
0: You know, one of the main things that are being discussed um, today, in, I mean, the world of, of blockchain is this idea of decentralized organizations is, you know, this platform like Facebook or Twitter or Uber, but without the ownership by a company, but more like cooperatives, right? So um, owned by users where users have voice and they have possibility of voting what the Policy of the company or the platform should be, and uh, lots of the the, the questions we, we have now is like how to build you know the right governance for these organizations in the sense that institution building you know uh, what the. Um, I mean, founding fathers of the United States were thinking in the late 18th century, how do we structure, you know, the institutions of the the U.S. for uh, uh, avoiding abuse of power by the president, but also by the by the the parliament and also, you know, and uh, so I have spent. Last, I mean, six months, like reading everything I could about institution building, and the, these processes of constitution, you know, building in particular. I mean, I read, I mean, how the Greek did it, how the US did it, and also more contemporary situations. Because one of the, I mean, in my opinion, most fascinating ideas of um, to come now is that how these new organizations build a governance system that is sustainable and it works and it doesn't fall like a prey to a number of uh, evils or problems that we saw democracies to to have. You know, for example, how to prevent demagogues from taking power. And this is why my question about the theatocracy, you know, because this is the same, you kind of see the same patterns. I mean, again and again, you know, as Mark Twain said, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. So you, you we can see we can see this uh, rhyming, and this is why I mean one of the most fascinating um research topics for me is going to be how to make this governance. And uh, you also have a number of new um techniques for governance that are were not available in the <laughs> nation state era, like a liquid democracy. I mean, this idea of you can delegate your vote to some delegate and then take it back. I mean, it was very hard to do this by mail, you know, snail mail, or this idea of futarchy, where you combine um, like a prediction markets. It's like you know, gambling on democracy on policies. I mean, you can. I mean, and and this idea of how to structure um, new new incentives for for people to behave in the in the right ways. I mean. Do you have any thoughts on, you know, these new institutions, new institution building processes or, yeah, how, how do you see this evolving?
1: Yes. So what, what I see here is something that we have seen all across the history of democracy and, and the the evolution of democratic institutions and also non-democratic ones, uh, which is um, this idea that you rightly uh, pointed out, that the main themes are the very old themes. It's always the same. It's always about the same kind of problems, the same kind of challenges, and the same kind of goals that we have, and the same kind of values. So uh, when, when we try, the challenge now is how to find a new form of governance that might work uh, in these kind of uh, companies or organizations or uh, networks. And um, th- there are certain values that you certainly want to preserve in this kind of governance. And if you think about it, I guess, these will be the same values that we always had. You want a system of governance that preserves freedom and preserves equality and avoids tyranny. Uh, It's always the same kind of themes that we have always had. At the same time, uh, yes, there are different challenges. And that's, so you you named, you mentioned the founding fathers in the US. I think it's a, a very good example to understand that what they did was of course inspired by a Greek and Roman democracy. Actually, they called Senate uh, to the Senate uh, after the Roman Senate, and and they wanted to to build up a Republic after the Greek and Roman Republics. So there is continuity in some concerns, in some challenges and some values. And at the same time, there is discontinuity because of course the reality of the uh, United States of America had nothing to do with the reality of Rome and Greece. Um, so the same happens here. Now, um, what what I think is that what you need is to preserve. And um, you know, it would be long now to discuss uh, in uh, in detail about liquid democracy and, and other ideas. But but I, the the first thing I want to say is that I welcome all these initiatives because I think that we need to have debates about new ways of approaching these things. Uh, And and I celebrate that people now are trying to push for these kind of new ideas. Um, So for me, perhaps one of the, just to mention a couple of ideas that I think are fundamental. One is we need to approach this challenge, this fundamental challenge of how to rethink governance in these new contexts. We need to approach it with a complex uh, approach. So we need to realize that we are here designing a complex system. It's not you know even even the modern idea of division of powers with the three traditional powers executive legislative and judicial this was some level of complexity but even this is too simplistic we know i mean uh, there are much m- there are many other powers than th- these three and even these three they are organized in a way that is much more complex than than you might think at the beginning when you try to explain montesquieu uh, <laughs> actually if you read montesquieu he was already aware that these things were much more complex. So, the first thing is complexity. So, you need the challenge here is to design a system of governance that is necessarily, you need it to be necessarily complex. And complexity here means that different people and different actors in the system must have different roles. Not everyone is doing the same, not everyone needs to do the same. They have different roles and you need to identify which these different roles are pretty much in the same way in which Montesquieu identified the three main roles of the state, legislative, executive and judicial. But of course, now adapted to the new reality and the new kind of organization. So one one way of approaching this is which are the main functions and roles that I need to be performed here? And then once you have identified this, you can identify, okay, who is best located or suited to perform these roles? Uh, and, and of course you need the best, ideally, you need the best people, uh, the most able people to legislate. You need them in the legislative. And those who are very capable for judging and adjudicating, you need them in the judicial and so on and so forth. Um, so that's one thing, complexity. We are talking here about complex systems all the time. This is a very difficult, it's a hard thing, uh, but we, we have learned many things uh, from our history. So we can apply what we have learned and then try to adapt it and innovate in this new context. And the second thing, um, just to name two, the second thing uh, that is fundamental is, we need to do that and at the same time preserve or defend the system from tyranny and domination. I think this is the great evil in any kind of system of governance. So domination is a kind of key or basic concept, uh, maybe because I'm Republican and Republicans have been keen on identifying this as an evil. Uh, Actually, for them, freedom is the opposite of domination or the other way around. Domination is the opposite of freedom. So if you want, one of the challenges here is you need to design a system that is complex enough, that it does its best to perform all the functions and concrete tasks that you want the system to perform. But at the same time, you need to avoid domination because that's the greatest evil in politics or in governance and domination might have very different faces and very different manifestations so you you need to be aware of how domination might uh, uh, instantiate in these particular contexts and try to avoid that sometimes domination comes when you have only one single person or a few people making decisions in the name of the organization so if you want a, a concrete example when facebook They created the oversight board and they said, "Okay, this is a a bold step in towards the democratization of the company. Wait a minute. You have not democratized anything. So it's basically Zuckerberg and the people on top who are making decisions. And then, yes, you have this marginal board taking some cases and making some kind of recommendations. They have no power. Uh, They have very limited uh, authority to discuss the issues that they want to discuss, et cetera, et cetera. So this is not enough if you want to avoid domination. Domination might take the traditional form of having some people uh, ruling uh, in an authoritarian way and imposing their view on others. This is something you need to avoid. But you also need to avoid the opposite or the other way of uh, instantiating domination, which is when you have a majority of people just voting and, and imposing majority rule and saying, "Okay, this is what we decided," and the minority, we don't care. I mean, they they lost; they have lost this decision, so we can do whatever we want on them. Of course, you cannot do that. You need some kind of limits, and in the traditional language, we would call them rights. You need some fundamental rights to protect minorities as well. Uh, because in, if not, we know that the majority can be tyrannical. So, just uh, in in synthesis, so domination or, th- or or tyranny, it might come. It might be the tyranny of majority, or it might be the tyranny of minority, and both things you want to avoid it. So, this is uh, as I see it. As as far as I see it, this is the main challenge when we try to design uh, these new forms of governance.
0: You know, um, I have been reading a book called How Democracies Die, uh, and studies how well i mean different processes of constitution building and 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 how this turned out to be and then in the real world because you build a constitution and then you put it to work and then you know who knows what happens but what they found you know people uh, have this idea of you know the u.s constitution being like a great you know engineering of incentives and you know institutions to make it work and and the thesis in this other this book is you know it's totally the opposite you you know all of the founding fathers, when they finished the constitution, they were, everyone was unhappy for different reasons. And they, all of them thought this will never work. But the, the hypothesis is that this, I mean, it worked for like 200 years, not because it was good institutional design, but it more because there was a political culture. Uh, in the United States, of tolerance to uh, op- opponents, you know, um, and some idea of, uh, in the end, we're all Americans. and we share, I mean, a vision for the future. We share some values. I mean, this is what make made it. I mean, work more than you know, some great institutions, right? So it's kind of, I sometimes think that you know, we need uh, this uh, education also of people and in. in polit- I mean, I would say, I think Machiavelli called it political virtue or something. <laughs>
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I have all my sympathies with Machiavelli and and the republican tradition, as I already said. And I, I I'm absolutely with you. I think that democracy cannot exist without citizens, without the right kind of citizens in the in the sense not not that they have the right opinions. I mean, people have, can have different opinions. Some of them right, some of them wrong. We all have wrong opinions all the time. So, but but democracy requires uh, citizens having developing certain kind of virtues or dispositions um and most fundamentally uh loving democracy itself i mean democracy that's one of the paradoxes with democracy democracy cannot be imposed if you go and invade iraq and then you try to impose democracy by force top down it will never work uh democracy cannot be imposed uh, either, at the, uh unless the people really want democracy democracy will mm-hmm. not work uh so and, and then you of course need to invest in developing the right kind of, of culture. But then there is, there's another thing that is fundamental. Uh, and this is what connects with my main interest, which is collective intelligence. I think that, you know, the history of democracy, you can be seen as, as a history of collective intelligence if you want. And this is also what connects democracy and politics with other issues like uh, science, which is a history of collective intelligence on itself, or art, or our artistic or historical patrimony. Or the book example that all books on collaboration make, the paradigmatic example of collaboration, which is Wikipedia. So Wikipedia is interesting. It's an interesting case because you have different roles of different people performing different roles. Not everyone does everything. And most contributors to Wikipedia, they don't make governing decisions on Wikipedia, but they make contributions. And they have the right incentives. Uh, This was, you know, for many people that was shocking when it happens. So, if you approach Wikipedia from classic liberal economy economic theory, you might have predicted that Wikipedia is impossible because people are not paid for what they contribute, and not they don't even receive any kind of recognition or any symbolic payment. So there is no payment. So why they should do it? Well, the thing is they. As you know, you, I'm sure you know this. So there are studies who have uh, tried to give this answer, and what they say is, people contribute to Wikipedia first because it's something that it, it builds up and it contributes to the common good. So people don't will will not do it if you're just contributing to the to the wealth of uh, your neighbor, right? Uh, people will will not do it. Why should you collaborate with your bank? To make your banker richer, right? So you you don't do that. But if it's for the common good, you do it because you the common good is also your good. That's by definition. So it needs to be for the common good. Um you need to be a result of what you are doing. So even if you're well, second, the contribution can be very bold and huge, or it can be just very marginal. Maybe you just edit a sentence because you think that it was, there was a typo or something, or you add a detail or a footnote. or So your contribution might be very tiny. Nobody is asking you to make a huge uh, waste of time there or a huge investment of time. So you can decide. You are in control of what you contribute to and, and what is the amount of time that you spend. And third, uh, you see an immediate result of your contribution. So when you change something, you go to the mm-hmm. web, page, web page and it has been changed. So it's not like in traditional democratic politics that you vote, but you don't really see whether your vote makes any difference. Here, it makes a difference. It might be a tiny difference, but it makes a difference. And I think, you know, for many reasons, Wikipedia is like a paradigmatic example of collective intelligence that might apply to your question about how to organize this uh, uh, governance in this context, again. Because I I think that you don't need to have, again, if you adopt this idea of complexity, you, you can concede that different people might make different contributions and different kind of tasks. You don't need everyone doing exactly the same, but you need to make feel make the people feel that what they do is actually contributing to something collective, and that there is some kind of common rationale, some common good behind this. Um, and that's the, the old idea of collective intelligence. So, so I think, you know, for me, that's crucial to understand the, the democracy of the future, the idea that it needs to be associated with some form of collective intelligence to which every single citizen might have something to say or something to contribute to, even if it's only a tiny thing. But everyone might have something to bring in in this kind of collective government.
0: Good. I mean, I could stay for hours, but I mean, I'm just going to ask one one final question. Um, So what do you recommend as readings or, I mean, movies or whatever you want to to recommend to people who want to learn more about global governance, collective intelligence, AI and politics, or all of the topics that we have discussed today?
1: uh, There are many, many things. But So for instance, regarding uh, collective intelligence, uh, I would recommend, you know, among many others, I don't want to miss anyone, but I would recommend uh, the works of Howard Rheingold, for instance. Uh, his latest book came out ten years ago. Net Smart, Net Smart is the name. Uh, but for me, it's a still a uh, very important book, very visionary. Howard Rheingold has been visionary all his life. Uh, he was actually the inventor of the idea, or the, the one who spoke the, for, for the first time about uh, virtual communities in the eighties. Um, and for me, he's a, a visionary. Also, I would mention, uh, um, um, Tim Mulgan, um, uh, in, in his book, The Big Mind, uh, that's the name of the book, The Big Mind by, by Mulgan, uh, he's the former director of Nesta in the UK, uh, and it's a book bas- explaining the basics about, about collective intelligence. And, and I also would like to recommend, uh, the latest book of my friend Beth Novak, uh, and the book is called "Solving Public Problems." Basically, because this is is a book, uh, plenty of examples of real examples and and real uh, real life tools about how to improve governance to make it more uh, based on collective intelligence, but also more accountable and more effective, which is in the end what we all want. Uh, so I would recommend maybe uh, these three authors. Um, but, you know, uh, literature is jo- is huge and, um, you know, and, and movies are, all, there are many movies and TV shows also that are interesting, but I, I think, um, I would invite people to read about these things. Maybe just one last recommendation, uh, because I, we were talking about Wikipedia. If people want to know more about the example of Wikipedia and many other examples, uh, there is this book, it's already 10 years old as well, this, this book, uh, by Yokai Bankler. Uh, called The Penguin and the Leviathan. And it's actually a re, an attempt to reconceptualize our uh, political inst- institutions uh, from the point of view of new technologies and, and this idea of collaboration that I like.
0: José Luis Martí, thank you very much for joining us in this episode of The Centralized Justice Broadcast and uh, see you next time.
1: Thank bye you bye. very much for the invitation. It was a pleasure. Bye-bye.
0: And this was another episode of the Decentralized Justice Broadcast. Our guest today was José Luis Martí, and we discussed all things about globalization, technology, and the future of democracy in the Internet age. I am Federico As. I am president of the cooperative Cleros. See you on the next episode. Bye-bye.